On Thursday morning, I began reading a book called The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. It was written in 1686, an old book. And as I sat in my office, my heart was pierced and struck. I was stirred as I read Thomas Watson's words of warning to a religious hypocrite. That's how he introduces his book. Let me share some of those uh, words and paraphrase some of those thoughts with you this morning. Hypocrisy, he says, is utterly useless in the end. Hypocrites lose all they have done. Their sham tears drop beside God's bottle. Their prayers and fasts prove abortive. Hypocrites have the praise of men, but not the privilege of heaven. And then he talks about paint. Those Pharisees who painted the outside of the cup, even though the inside was corrupt. He says, will painted gold enrich a man? Will painted wine refresh him who is thirsty? Will the paint of godliness help you stand? He who, is he who has only a painted holiness shall have only a painted happiness. Oh, beware. Counterfeit piety is double iniquity. Friends, are you shocked and horrified and disturbed about the thought of pride or hypocrisy in your life? Uh, too many of us don't view this issue with a sense of godly fear, with a sense of trembling. And as we come to God's Word this morning, we consider the downfall of a hypocrite king. 1 Samuel chapter 8 showed Israel pining after a human king for all the wrong reasons. Do you guys remember that? Oh, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations. Chapter 9, if you read this week, presents tall, dark, and handsome candidate named King Saul. And in 10 to 12, chapters 10 to 12, he's anointed, he's publicly proclaimed as king. And then in chapter 13 to 15, there are two important military campaigns. Uh, Saul goes to war with the Philistines and with the Amalekites. And amidst that time, we begin to see some of Saul's rotten character, his love of influence, his love of praise, his disobedience. And what I want to do this morning in chapter 15 is look at four movements in what is a shocking story of Saul's irreversible disobedience and Saul's irreversible rejection by the Lord. And this narrative, chapter 15, we'll read it as we go, is fascinating on several levels. First, it's a, it's a hinge chapter where God begins to move. He shifts from King Saul and he begins to raise up King David. We'll see that in the coming weeks. So it's a hinge. It's also, chapter 15, is, it's an exposing chapter. We read these words as we think about obedience, as we think about hypocrisy, as we think about genuine repentance, and it's a very exposing section of Scripture. And then running throughout this passage is this large idea that God desires, He demands, He loves genuine obedience from the heart. 18 times in the text, this theme comes up. And it's, of course, the theme that runs throughout our Bibles. Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, you will keep my commands. So let's look at these four movements that unpack the shocking downfall of a shallow, hypocrite king. Movement number one 
is Saul's partial obedience to God's clear command. Saul's partial obedience to God's clear command. This is in verse 1 to 9. The text begins, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me. So this is a divine commission. The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. The idea, friends, is is obey, listen and hear, respond to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel in that he obstructed him on the way when he was coming out from Egypt. Amalek was a people group. The Amalekites, they were unbelieving, wicked descendants of Esau. And Exodus chapter 17, we won't go there this morning, it records what we might describe as a dirty attack on the Israelites. They went out from Egypt and the Amalekites attacked them from the rear. They attacked them from behind. And what that tells us is that they attacked specifically the sick, the elderly, the weak, and the children. And God was grieved by this. He declared what he described as perpetual war on the Amalekites until they were utterly destroyed, kind of like a a promise of vindication. And now chapter 15, verse 3, is going to be a a fulfillment of that promise. Look at what it says. Verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has, and do not spare him, that is, the king. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow. God is calling for extermination. You say, what is this? I mean, I can can understand the, the armies, but the animals? The children? This is disturbing. And it is disturbing on one level, but this act of divine justice and vengeance is not an ethnic cleansing. It's not a genocidal call, but an elimination of false worship and wickedness. And he promised he would do the same thing on Israel if they took up their ways, and he did. He allowed other nations to be uh, raised up in judgment. Heath Thomas gives a helpful perspective here. He says, ancient peoples like Israel and Amalek, they saw their national identities bound up with three factors. Their particular place, their particular God, and their particular group. For example, the Moabites lived in southeast, uh, or excuse me, lived southeast of the Jordan and worshipped Chemosh. They believed Chemosh cared for them in that particular place. And so when the Amalekites were displaced and defeated, their gods were exposed as powerless and false before Yahweh's authority to judge evil. That's helpful, I think. This command, really, though there's more that we could say about the backdrop and the, and the history and the violence, this command on one level was, it was an honor for Saul. It was prophesied for centuries that justice would be done, and now God is saying, Saul, you will be a chosen instrument for my will. Verse 4, look at this. Then Saul summoned the people, and he counted them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he set an ambush in the Wadi. But Saul said to the Kenites, Go, get get away, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to the sons of Israel when they went out from Egypt. 
And so the Kenites got away from the Amalekites. This appears actually to be an act of genuine mercy. These were a friendly sort of nomadic tribe. Verse 7 continues, Then Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah going to Shur, which is east of Egypt. So this is hundreds of miles, a widespread attack. It says, He captured Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and completely destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So Saul, he carries out the command of the Lord. Kind of. Look at verse 9. This is so important. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the more valuable animals, the lambs, and everything that was good and were unwilling to destroy them completely. But everything despicable and weak, that they completely destroyed. Friends, this is not obedience. This is partial obedience. And it's been well said. I've talked to some of you who are in the throes of family dynamics. You're raising little ones. Partial obedience is, yeah, disobedience. See, Saul, excuse me, Saul preserved what was good. Uh, what was valuable? What was advantageous? He obeyed when it was easy, uh, when it matched what he already thought was reasonable, what made sense to him according to his own opinion. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier this last week about reasons that couples don't love each other sacrificially. And we were talking about how often we enjoy the idea of sacrifice more than actually doing it in the moment. <laughs> or you could say it this way, we enjoy the idea of obedience, husband's Spend yourselves. Love, uh, love your wives with a sacrificial love. We enjoy the idea of obedience more than actually doing it in the moment. It's very unglamorous and inconvenient. Plus, I want what I want. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, well, how about partially mortifying anger? Or how about mostly telling the truth at work? Or how about partial honesty with my words? It's easy to think this way, isn't it? Filtering God's commands through the grid of our own wisdom, our own opinion. God said complete destruction, but Saul, he was, he was unwilling. You know, we, we think this way sometimes. Well, partial obedience is, is good for something. It's close enough. So movement one is partial obedience to the command of the Lord. Movement number two, friends, this is so convicting. Movement number two is Saul's self-protecting excuses when he's confronted on disobedience. Saul's self-protecting excuses when confronted on disobedience. And this, in the following verses, it's a showdown that reflects really an unacceptable response to sin that, can I say this? is all too common in our own hearts. Look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Maybe you've been there. You're, you're crying out to the Lord on behalf of a, of, a, of a friend, a family member, a sleepless night in anguish and prayer over disobedience. Verse 12 continues, So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and proceeded to go down to Gilgal. 
Friends, what follows in these verses is several responses that typify a self-protecting heart that refuses to repent, that refuses to face itself, that refuses to take ownership for sin. And it gets ugly. The first mark is right there in verse 12, and we could just call it arrogance, or maybe more aptly, arrogance despite compromise. He's already compromised, and yet he's arrogant. Saul made a monument for himself. We studied it last week. The king's responsibility, number one priority, was to give glory to God. It was to copy the law of God and then rule by the wisdom and the truths of the law of God. And so we already see, even at this point, a selfish ambition swelling fat in the, in the heart of Saul amidst, not his obedience, but his lame, partial obedience. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 in your Bible. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Liar. No, you haven't. <laughs> what a snake. First arrogance. And then we might say secondly, flattery. Oh, blessed are you. He has no blessing to offer. <laughs> he flatters him on the front end. We could say it this way. It's flattery to deflect Scrutiny. <laughs> One pastor said it this way. Master manipulators, they go on the offensive to take control of a conversation and to quickly establish their obedience or their contrition before someone asks them hard questions. You ever seen that? Ever done that? Someone self-protecting? So there's flattery. There is, third, the bold-placed lie. We could call this dishonesty. I have obeyed. <laughs> Beloved, mark it down. Mark it down and examine your own heart. If we are filled with fear of man and love of praise, we will be willing to lie. Because if sin is exposed and I'm willing to delude myself and not face it, then dishonesty towards others, it blooms fast. He hasn't obeyed and, and Samuel knows it. The Lord already revealed this to him, right? He knows it. Look at verse 14. Samuel said, Saul... What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? What's the background noise, Saul? What's with the fresh manure? There's a living, breathing, sheep bleeding testimony of your disobedience, Saul. And so found out, hard evidence on the table, Saul is cut to the heart and he mourns his sin. Is that what it says? Nope. Verse 15, Saul said, they, what? I thought we were talking about you, Saul. They have brought the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Watch that little sort of table turning. He kind of puts it, you know, this isn't about what God's called me to do. The Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. They, your, we. These are pronoun gymnastics in this one verse. Are you kidding me? Look, look, just look at this. He says, the people, they're responsible for leaving the best livestock, which is both a lie and we could add a fourth tactic and we'll call that blame shifting. Blame shifting. But then in the same verse, he switches back and takes credit. So he says, they didn't obey, aka I'm not responsible, but we, myself included, did obey on the rest. You gotta be kidding me. What a self-deluded, self-righteous fool. And yet, have you done this? Of course you have. And so have I. 
Blame shifting. It happens when we evade biblical language in favor of psychology language or victim language to describe our sin. It happens when we blame our sin on our upbringing or some kind of baggage that way. It happens, friends, with cliches like, I know I shouldn't have reacted that way, but you made me do it. No, that's not what the Bible says. I did what I did because it came from where? It came from my heart, it came from my will, it came from my selfish ambition to be all about number one. That's what my Bible tells me. But we say, well, I, I, I'm sorry I did that. I was just really stressed. It was, the, it was my circumstance. It was the situation. On top of all this, did you see, how, did you see what Saul did with his motives? <laughs> how he presented his motives? What's the reason that Saul preserved what God said to destroy in verse 15? Well, we were going to use the spoil for... Sacrifice for worship. Not only do we have arrogance, flattery, dishonesty, blame shifting, we have rationalizing. Rationalizing. Yeah, I disobeyed, but I had a good reason for it. I disobeyed, but I had a good motive in my disobedience. He's trying to make his disobedience seem virtuous. No, you didn't have a good motive, Saul. We know your motive by your monument. His motive was obvious. But friends, think about this. Have you ever self-protected by rationalizing your motives instead of just owning sin head on? Or talked about weakness in a positive light? I can't tell my wife about impurity on my phone because I love her and I want to protect her. That's deception and lying rebranded as love. Yes, I was harsh in that conversation, but... It was in defense of the truth. When I was a boy, about seven years old, there was a drugstore uh, in Bozeman called Gibson's. And Gibson's had this big cardboard box filled with buttons. And I, at one point when we were there, I lined my pockets with all of these buttons, all these different kind of buttons, stole a bunch of them. And I actually, I don't remember if this was in the store or at the house. I remember I was walking around at one point my pockets are clinking and my mom was saying, hey, do you have, what's in your pocket? Money. Um, we get home. I've got, my, I've got all these buttons, different colors, some sparkly ones. And uh, I think I'm beginning to feel convicted or something. And so I, I go to my mom and I, and I confess, mom, I, I stole these. And uh, she, she began to, to cry because her son was a thief. <laughs> oh, and it was hard. Um, she, was, she was distraught. Um, and I remember seeing the tears. I remember saying, Mom, I did it for you. <laughs> and, I, and I tried to offer her some of the, some of the particularly pretty ones. You know what? I'm my own inner defense attorney and all joking aside, th th think about our sin, beloved, when we do this. This does not please the Lord. We're so good at this, assigning good motives to an action that the Lord calls sin. That hits a little close to home, doesn't it? Verse 16, watch this. Samuel says to Saul, he says, you've got to stop. He says, wait. In other words, stop. Stop the clown show. 
Stop the circus act. I know the truth, Saul. He says, verse 16, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. In other words, uh, you said that you did obey. The Lord said you didn't obey. Uh, one of you is wrong, and it's not God. Right? Saul says, speak. Samuel said to him, is it not true that though you were, you were little in your own eyes and you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they're exterminated. He says, Saul, don't you know your position? Don't you know your commission? It's all from God. You know your accountability before the Lord, don't you, Saul? Verse 19, he says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rushed on the spoil, and you did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So what happens? Saul finally recognizes, I'm a man under authority, and he breaks down in contrition. Mm, not quite. Verse 20, Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. You've got to be kidding me. And I went on the mission which the Lord sent me. That's true. And I have brought back Agag, king of Amalek. Yeah, that was sin, Saul. <laughs> You're not obeying. You partially obeyed and called it obedience. He says, I utterly destroyed the other Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people, here's this again, the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest things devoted to Israel. They sacrificed it. It was your God they sacrificed it to, Samuel. This is a bunch of recycled garbage. He says, I did right, they did, they did wrong. He sanitizes his motives again. And Samuel's thinking, am I having deja vu right now? Did you just say this 10 seconds ago, Saul? Answer, yes, he did. Beloved, these are the, these are the denial tactics of a self-excusing heart. It's all excuse-making. It's all evasion. And so Samuel says, okay, you want to talk about how you're using this to sacrifice and worship and the rest. Let me tell you how God views sacrifice. Let me tell you how God views obedience. Look at verse 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Those are well-known words. That's an axiom from this prophet and he's saying, look, God's priority is not religious activity, but what? Obedience, to trust him, to keep his commands, true obedience from the heart. Friends, if a person sings songs and then takes notes and gives money to church, but their life is filled with casual obedience and partial obedience, God is not impressed by that. He's not pleased by that. Psalm 51, in his psalm of repentance and confession, Psalm 51, David said, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. He says, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God is after our hearts, beloved. He's after our hearts. Yes, he... he he commanded sacrifice in the Old Covenant, but it was always, it was an open ear. It was a pliable heart that he desired, a submissive heart. Isaiah 66, 2 says, on this one I will look. He who is what? Humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. In fact, friends, God hates disobedience so much that he compares it to what in verse 23? Look at this. 
pagan false worship. He says, verse 23, for rebellion, the opposite of obedience, rebellion is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Guys, this is how God views the person who does religion but is unwilling to obey him. As if we could sort of just pay him off by some ritual, by some uh, uh, sham that way. He says it's no better than divination. Listen to how one commentator illustrates this. Imagine that you were at someone's house for dinner and you have a great time, good food, good conversation. And just as you're leaving, your friend says, hey, I'm so glad that you came over to uh, hang out tonight. But before you go, I want to invite you upstairs with me. I've got a pentagram and some candles spread on the floor and thought we could offer our bodies in, and uh, make a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a goat to Satan. Uh, don't worry, though. We'll go to church on Sunday just like a normal week. How would you react to that? You'd be shocked, disturbed, revulsed. That's how God views hypocrites if we reject obeying him, all the while going through the motions, going through the ritual of worship, cheating at school, holding on to just a little bit of bitterness, just a little bit of man-pleasing. These kind of things, they should horrify us. They should disgust us. Why? Because God hates disobedience and he loves, he loves true obedience from the heart. He loves it. He says disobedience is as re reprehensible as divination. That's like witchcraft, sorcery, false religion. And you think, Saul's got to be convicted at this point. Surely he'll own his sin. Not so fast. First, we saw Saul's partial obedience to a clear command. Second movement was Saul's self-protecting excuses when confronted on disobedience. Third, is Saul's shallow repentance and continued defiance. This is shocking. His shallow repentance and his continued defiance. Friends, when I say shallow repentance, I mean fake repentance, false repentance, sham repentance. It's the same concept that the Apostle Paul would coin with a turn of phrase generations later as worldly sorrow that leads to death, 2 Corinthians 7. In fact, why don't you leave your finger in 1 Samuel, but flip ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul issues a rebuke to the Corinthian church. Uh, there, was, uh, there was sort of growing sin within the body, even after what we studied in 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and the church was susceptible to blooming false doctrine. And so he writes a really strong correction before... Uh, 2 Corinthians, and now he's following up. And look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Paul says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart leading to a change of life, proven true by its fruit, by its Fruits of repentance, Matthew uh, 3, 8 would say. I'm, I, I was not sorrowful. Uh, I, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything through, through us. 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In one verse, verse 11, Paul spells out the marks of genuine repentance. He says true repentance is earnest and that's an, that's an urgency to kill sin. Shallow repentance, on the other hand, is casual and complacent with sin. True repentance is marked by indignation. That's a hatred for sin. Shallow repentance only hates the embarrassment, the consequences of sin, the exposure. True repentance has fear, Paul says. That's alarm before God's holiness. Shallow repentance waters down divine accountability. It pushes the fear of the Lord out of the picture. True repentance has longing, which is an interesting term. It's actually a horizontal term for repairing relationships damaged by sin. Shallow repentance fails to do the hard work of rebuilding what our sin tears down. True repentance has zeal. That's a passion for God to be glorified. Shallow repentance doesn't want God's glory if it costs self-exposure. And true repentance willingly accepts punishment of wrong. We might just describe this as consequences for sin. Consequences. False repentance chafes, it rages, it bucks at the consequences. And so you see this sort of contrast, this picture in first, uh, rather, 2 Corinthians 7 of the, uh, the dynamics of genuine repentance. Go back to 1 Samuel 15 as we get sort of a narrative illustration that illustrates some components of false repentance, of sham repentance, of empty repentance. And the first one we notice in verse 24, we might just describe it this way, is empty words. Empty words. Look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Looks good. The chapter ended here. If there wasn't more to the picture, you might think, hey, this is confession. He says, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord. It gets really clear what's going on by the time we get to verse 27 and verse 30. But we start with empty words. You say, how did Saul become such a deceptive hypocrite? Verse 24 actually tells us, friends, what the sin was that controlled his heart. In sort of a quick flash of honesty, we see the ruling motive that drove Saul Look at verse 24. I sinned because, why? I feared the people and listened to their voice. You say, Tom, wait a second. The big bad sin driving all of this master hypocrisy was people pleasing? You better believe it. You better believe it. Fear of man craving man's praise. This was the engine driving all of his deception and lies and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. This sham repentance is marked by empty words, and we could just say it this way. It's marked by a love for approval. It's marked by a love for approval. In 1 Samuel 13, if you read this week, Samuel uh, is coming later to the battlefield. Saul is uh, supposed to wait before offering sacrifice. And why does he, why does he jump the gun? Because he's afraid that the people, the people will scatter. He's obsessed with what the people think. Saul was a man pleaser. Saul loved recognition. 
And beloved, I, I, I'm getting fired up about this issue because I'm just, I'm so convicted about it in my own life. We're talking about it in Tuesday mornings with the men's training. And uh, it's just so despicable and discouraging. I, I was struggling with this, with this sermon. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, because I wanted to preach this text and I started studying it. And it's like, oh, it's so intense. And, you know, people are going to think I'm like really hardcore every time I fill the pulpit. And they're going to remember when we went through Jude, we talked about false doctrine every time. You know, sermon after sermon in Jude. And, you know, they're going to frown at me and people aren't going to like it. And it's like, Tom, fear God. Fear God. Not man. I struggle with this. Here's what you need to know. Here's what my heart needs to know. Fear of man is the love of self-glory. It is the love of approval, of recognition. It's a craving for self-glory. And we love to paint this issue up in pastel colors and call it a weakness and say it's not that bad of a sin and say, well, I'm just kind of shy. I'm just kind of a people pleaser. Make no mistake, friends, when I fear man, when I shrink back, when I'm obsessed with what everyone else thinks and not what God says, I have one commitment, and it is to who? Myself. Self-glory. And UBC, God hates it. It's a seedbed of evil. James chapter 3, verse 13 and following, we won't, we won't go there this morning, it, it calls the love for distinction and approval, it calls, which, is the, which is the root system that drives fear of man, it calls that demonic. People-pleasing is demonic. It's sinister. It's wicked. It's ungodly. And it ruins our usefulness. It causes us to lie. It feeds self-righteousness. It ruins our relationships. It erodes our convictions. And in self-deception, we go the way of Saul. So there's a warning for us here in this issue. Not to play games with people-pleasing. Not to play games with the love of influence and the love of approval. And yet, think about this, friends. Just because Saul named his issue, his, his ruling heart motive, he named his idolatry, it doesn't mean that he actually parted with it. Look at verse 24, or excuse me, 25. 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I'm not... I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul here, he needs Samuel by his side to maintain his image before the people. He's saying, hey, uh, Samuel, even though the Lord has rejected me, can you just maybe place yourself in proximity next to me so that others can see us worshiping together and maybe they can come to their own conclusion about what's going on in my heart? He's still gripping approval with white knuckles right here. And so we could say this, in addition to loving approval, we see as a mark of shallow repentance, we see substitutes for repentance. And that's what's interesting in verse 24 to 26. As I, as I just meditated on that little section, you can look at this again in your own time, but verse 24 to 26 tells me four things. It's possible to acknowledge sin without repenting. He says, I have sinned. I have transgressed. Did he repent? No. It's possible to acknowledge sin without repentance. It's possible to name the ruling motive, the idol, the idol of the heart. It's possible to do that without repentance. He says, I feared the people. True. And you love it still. It's possible to do that without repenting. It's possible, third, to ask for forgiveness. Pardon me. Without repenting. It's possible to renew your focus on worship without repenting. Repenting. 
He says, let's go worship the Lord as long as you do it with me and people see. So Samuel, he sees through this charade and now Mr. I'm so sincere, he starts getting aggressive. He starts getting desperate, physically even. Look at verse 27. As Samuel turned to go, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, Here's an object lesson for you, Saul. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel. That's a name for Yahweh, a name for God. The glory of Israel who does not uh, share his glory with men. He does not share his glory with, with glory mongerers like you, Saul. He says he will not lie. He will not change his mind for he is not a man that he would change his mind. He's saying, he's saying, God won't lie for you, Saul. He won't parade you around as the paragon of obedience in Israel. He won't relent from his consequences in your life just because you gave a self-protecting, lip-service confession that didn't actually turn from sin. He does not play games, Saul, with shallow, faked repentance. Wow. You think Saul's going to humble himself? Verse 30. Then he said... I have sinned, just gag me. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people, before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. This is so sad. This delusion is so sad. He's obsessed. He's obsessed with being seen as righteous. Far more than actually wanting to be righteous, he wants to be seen this way. And we could say that, this is, that there's an ingredient here. There's a mark of shallow repentance in that it's, it's obsessed with human consequences. It's obsessed with human consequences, right? He's begging and he's scheming and he's evading and he's trying to move forward all the while clutching his idols. And he says, hey, Samuel, let's just kind of go back together. The people don't necessarily have to like know about this specific private conversation. And you want to just say, Saul, Saul, God knows. God knows. He knows your heart. He's in the room. He searches your motives. He searches mine. Verse 31. So Samuel went back following Saul. So he didn't go with him. He didn't play that game. He went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. <laughs> you could put worshipped in quotes. It's not real. He still hasn't repented. It's a show. And you have this downward slide of deception and delusion, and then there's a pivot in verse 32. So we've seen Saul's partial obedience We've seen Saul's self-protecting excuses when confronted. We've seen his shallow repentance, how he just continues to evade and defy. And then now, as we close, we see Samuel's absolute obedience before the Lord. His absolute obedience. Look at this. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag. It's a command. Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him <laughs> cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He's all cheerful. He's all chipper, probably because he's been hanging out with Saul. He says, hey, let's work out a deal. Watch the deal that Samuel cuts him. Verse 33. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hewed, he hacked, he cut Agag into pieces. Not before the people, not like Saul, but what? Before the Lord at Gilgal. Wow. Saul had no fear of God. The people controlled him. 
And while there were people present, Samuel did this to please an audience of one. Complete obedience, 100% obedience. Obedience without conditions. This is what surged through this prophet's veins. Now keep in mind, even as you think about this bloody verse, King Agag, he was a wicked king. He slaughtered his own people, particularly the women of the Amalekites. So he was a ruthless, godless tyrant. But most important here, friends, is that Samuel wanted to obey God. He said, spare none. There's a point in all of this narrative, and it's that when God speaks, he desires, he demands, he's glorified by genuine obedience from the heart. Not halfway, not 90%. When God commands, he's, he, he's not kidding us. He's not suggesting. He's God. Because he loves obedience from the heart. He loves it, friends even as he detests hypocrisy in the heart. Samuel did what Saul refused to do. He embraced the cost of obedience without conditions. Now look at how this chapter ends, kind of on a heavy note. Verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Uh, Saul would end up seeking Samuel out a couple times, but, Saul, but Samuel did not go and see Saul. For Samuel was grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted. He was grieved is the idea. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. These four movements that we've studied in chapter 15, they do several things. They record Saul's blowout, his, his failure, if you will. They prepare us for a shift to King David. They expose and teach us about the anatomy of disobedience. And they give us a really good opportunity just to kind of self-assess and look at my own heart, look at my own pliability before the Lord, before his truth, before confrontation with, with, with sin. But these four movements, they show the need for perfect obedience. They show the need for a perfect king. Just think about what we've seen with King Saul and you contrast Saul with Jesus. The obedience, the partial obedience of Saul versus the perfect obedience of Christ. Saul viewed obedience through the grid of his own wisdom. Jesus said, I only do what pleases the Father. Hmm. Saul was consumed with self-glory. Jesus was lost in the service of others and of serving the Father. Saul self-protected. Jesus self-sacrificed. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give, to give, to give, and then to sacrifice his life as a ransom for many. Saul refused to face his sin. Jesus made it so that those who come broken, who come to find his mercy and grace, we can face ourselves. We can face our sin through his resources, his grace, his kindness, his righteousness in our life, his empowering spirit in our life. This chapter speaks of obedience some 18 times. This charge of true obedience as being pleasing to God, this verse 22, obedience is better than sacrifice. But think about Jesus. Jesus obeyed perfectly. And then he sacrificed himself. And it pays for all of our pathetic self-atonement 
and self-righteousness and covering, fear of man and sham religion, Jesus pays the price. Jesus invites us to come to know him, to know life, to know grace, to be restored to God through him, to receive his righteousness by faith alone. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus, he came to his own. His own didn't receive him, but to those who did, who believed on his name, he gave the right to be children in his family by grace through faith alone. It's the gift of God. Apart from works, no man, no woman can boast. But friends, think about this. Even Jesus, whose compassionate heart extended wide. you gotta, you got to read that book, Gentle and Lowly. Even Jesus, whose pardon makes the guilty go free, whose cleansing washes the souls of sinners. Jesus, whose patience is staggering, whose mercy runs deeper than all of our sin. Jesus, whose grace is lavish to those who trust him. This same Jesus, friends, he gives words of warning to those who refuse him and harden their hearts. And he gives words of doom to those like Saul who play the part of religious hypocrisy. He says, Matthew 23, woe to you. So let me end where we begin. Thomas Watson says, Christian, if you mourn for hypocrisy, yet find this sin so powerful, you cannot get mastery of it, go to Christ, beg of him that he would exercise his kingly office in your soul, that he would subdue this sin and put it under the yoke. Beg of Christ to exercise his spiritual surgery upon you. Desire him to lance your heart and to cut out the rotten flesh that he would apply the medicine of his blood to heal you of your hypocrisy. Say that prayer of David often. Let the Lord, let my heart be sound in your statutes, Lord. Let me be anything rather than a hypocrite. A double heart will exclude from heaven. Let's pray.